the moments of tension that usually came with the opening bars of EastEnders. Whether it was who shot Phil Mitchell, discovering your sister is actually your mum, coming back from the dead or pushing Barry off a cliff, there was always quite literally a cliffhanger in Albert Square. And my guest today was no stranger to a bit of drama as her character Dawn. I'm Genevieve and here with me today to talk about her life after that thing she did. Please welcome Cara Toynton. Cara, lovely to see you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Although we had a bit of a spooky occurrence in our bedroom last night. Uh-huh. All of us, and I mean all of us, me, my husband and our two cats, Teddy and Sushi, who were sleeping at the bottom of our bed, were all woken up by three loud knocks at about 5am. Oh my word. And I was half asleep, so I didn't think too much about it and went back to sleep. But my husband sat up, the cats got up uh, and they couldn't figure out what it was. And I thought it came from outside, uh, but we've got a camera doorbell and nothing was picked up. Was it a full moon? What's going <laughs> my husband's, on? My husband's convinced it was the knocking on, uh, someone was knocking on the ottoman at the end of our bed. So it's a bit of a spooky mystery. Do you have many spooky stories in your household? Not this one, but our previous house, which is like a couple of doors down from where you live, um, we had like some poltergeist movement. There was one time when um, my husband, I was asleep through it, so I don't know, but my husband said that he felt like a depression on the bottom corner of our bed, like someone was sitting on the corner of the bed. And um, my husband's like six foot three, big guy. And um, his solution to this event was to just <laughs> cuddle up closer to me and draw his legs in. Oh, well, that, that's... <laughs> and not see what it was. But, um, but... That's such a compliment to you that you're the safety blanket in the relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? We must live in a bit, because as we know, we live quite close to each other. And, and I... I'm in what was um, an old mental hospital. And for a while I was living in the morgue. Wow. And I didn't realise that it used to be the morgue. And then when people were saying, "Have has it, we heard some really odd things go on in there. Have you noticed anything? But I'm so obliviously, you know, going through life and not noticing anything. I didn't. Um, so, uh, but it was quite funny. So I was looking at your Instagram earlier and I spotted something that I had to ask you about. Uh-huh. I saw you had posted a picture of you and your boys a couple of months ago and you were sitting at the bottom of a slide. Right. Now, earlier this year, I went to a park with my husband and I saw a slide. And I was like, I've not been on a slide for 30 years. I'm having a go on that. So I climbed to the top, sat down. And it turns out that having the bums and hips of an adult woman and not a child anymore <laughs> meant that I couldn't actually slide down the slide and I was just wedged at the top <laughs> and I was mortified. So, uh, so my question is... <laughs> Please tell me where your slide was so I can go on it. It looked a little wider. Well, all my parks seem to have very wide berth slides and they're wonderful because we could all literally go down there as a three. And so I need to take you out to the park on, on a fun slide day <laughs> and I'll, I'll give you a real good slide experience. Um, but you're right. You do, I have been on some of these things where you get stuck and um, you're in all sorts of different funny shapes and positions because you want to be the cool mum joining in. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's never a dull moment. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not even the cool mum joining in because I don't have kids. I'm just the creepy <laughs> adult. <laughs> in a child's park trying to get on a slide. 
<laughs> well, I'm I'm impressed that you get stuck in. You see, it's like... young at heart. That's what it is. Young, yeah, at heart. exactly. We're all peace and pounds. Uh, okay, so let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Rewinding back to the beginning, uh, you started acting at 11, pretty much as a hobby, and then did a few bits and bobs and adverts. And then at 16, you went to art college. And shortly after, in 2000, 2001, you got a job that changed everything, which was the part of feisty teen Pauline, try saying that three times, um, in the Channel 4 comedy drama Teachers, starring the lovely Andrew Lincoln, who of course went on to start in Love Actually and The Walking Dead. What are your memories of making it as your first big proper job? Um, and also, what a great young cast where you all went on to have brilliant careers after. Oh, it's really lovely to um, for someone to bring up something that is my one of my first memories of having a job that I was able to sort of immerse into and, and feel like part of the team, as it were, because we were filming in Bristol. So my memories are all congregating, that sort of the six of us who were the kid main roles. I was thinking I was 17 at that point, and it was a great job because we, yeah, we headed on up to Bristol, all staying in the hotel there. I can't remember where we were. The Thistle? The Thistle! How do uh -huh. you know that? I know some things. <laughs> wow, no, this really is nostalgic. You're helping me remember my own past. That's incredible. And it was, I just remember it so vividly because we, you know, the adult cast, Andy Lincoln, and all, they were so fantastic with us all. And James Corden was one of the kids with me and... Um, I have so many memories and, and you know, lots of karaoke nights. And James was very um, funny at doing karaoke. And we had my, one of my closest friends, Phoebe Thomas, was on that, that I've remained. You know, there's, it's funny, you do jobs and you, you hope to remain friends with people, but it's just occasionally you get that person that you click with and you do remain friends with forever. And, and uh, Phoebe Thomas is, is that for me. And I met her on that job. She, of course, went on to star in, in Holby after. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And she now lives in Bristol. So sort of come, <laughs> she's gravitated back. But oh, God, you've, you've really caught me there. What do I remember of it? Just looking up at the three main characters. In fact, there were a, a lot of adult characters in that. And I remember just looking up to them so much and asking questions because my dream was always to go to drama school. And I remember at that point, obviously, I was, you know, thinking about that. And a few, I think it was, Andrew Lincoln, who had been to drama school and said, no, you don't need to go if you've got an agent and you've been, you're learning on the job. And and then I think two of them had and one of them hadn't. And they both had completely ulterior sort of ideas on it and in, in that they, if you had been, you didn't need to go. And if you hadn't been, you should go. But I was so lucky that I've, I'd been doing it for a long time. And I did, I learned on the job for sure. A little bird told me that there were some pretty fun times among the younger cast, which may or may not have involved spinning someone around and forcing them to run down the corridors of the Thistle Hotel while you're all staying at it. <laughs> oh my goodness, where do you get this stuff from? <laughs> How do you know that? Never reveal my sources. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm really, really impressed. Oh my goodness, I've just remembered. <laughs> we have a mutual friend who told me some secrets. Um, <laughs> Thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> so after Teachers, yes. you had a string of smaller roles in various shows for a few years, 
including the football drama Dream Team, before you landed the role of Dawn Swan in the BBC soap EastEnders. And Dawn was described as a teaser for your arrival in Albert Square as a tart with a heart. Uh, it's a very EastEnders description. Uh, but one of your first storylines... A tart with a heart, number 22. <laughs> <laughs> who also happens to work behind the bar, yeah. yeah. Uh, but one of your first storylines was you conning people into giving you money for an operation as they thought you were really ill, but you actually really just wanted breast implants, <laughs> which meant you forever had to wear what women affectionately refer to as chicken fillets to boost your assets. I did. I became quite close to those chicken, quite literally. I lived with them for four years. And um, I think people were always quite shocked at how flat-chested I was in reality. <laughs> in fact, I grew quite shocked when I looked at myself in the mirror. And um, honestly, when I read that story, I mean, it was quite fun. I suppose I suppose I read it and I thought, oh, well, EastEnders is bringing a bit of comedy into its mist. And, and um, I did laugh at, at it. God, uh, yeah, this is really nostalgic. I'd forgotten all these things. That was my entry storyline. Who comes up with that stuff? Um, yeah. And poor Dawn, she had a boob job to try and be a model, only to be told she was too old at 20, too short, her face lacked distinction, oh. and to try glamour modelling instead, except fake boobs had fallen out of fashion there as well. I mean, the Stender grey cloud just, <laughs> it doesn't hold any, um, you know, it just goes with full force, doesn't it? And um, uh, uh, yeah, I felt really sorry for her. It was, um, she never had much luck, actually. She could have asked for a breast reduction surgery and then maybe you could have got rid of the chicken. You know, <laughs> then that would have would have gone in a whole different direction and, you know, Dawn might have been a lot happier and not weighed down so much. Because it was, it was, um, it was bizarre wearing them all the time. And I think I had a storyline where I was pregnant as well. And so I was just padded like sort of a Michelin man from head to toe. And when I went home in the evening, I just felt so bizarre and light. And um, yeah, it was because you're wearing something for nine months. So you do sort of get quite attached to the bump, you know, and, and really getting into eating and becoming very method at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, you remember these things that you forget, you know, what, what it, was, it was a long time ago. But I, I really enjoyed um, when I went into EastEnders. I'd just done that stint on Dream Team and I loved being part of a team. And because I'd been doing it from, you know, from a young age and every time I got into something, I mean, even teachers, it was lovely, but it, it still felt quite quick, really. You know, you were there for a few months and then it was all over and back to the drawing board of the auditions and um, castings, etc. So it was really nice to have... I thought, God, if I get an opportunity to be in something for a bit, that's what I could really do with right now. And EastEnders came up and I remember I went for my final audition for it. There were about six stages, I think. And the final one was um, in the Vic doing a camera test. And um, our sort of company manager of the show walked me out of the building and said, now, correct you know, if this comes off and you get offered the role, you really have to think about it and what it means and, you know, all of this. And I thought, hell yeah, I'm going to take it if I get <laughs> offered it. I was thinking, what is she warning me of? I mean, surely what's the worst that could happen? And I, I sort of understand what she means in, well, I do understand what she means in hindsight because um, I was 21 and that's young. And um, But it just, at that, that time, that's really what I 
I I needed is to just feel part of a team and have that camaraderie. And that's what it gave me. So although after a few years of ordering a sandwich every week, I, <laughs> I, I felt that, you know, it wasn't exactly pushing the um, the acting skills to the limit. <laughs> so let's talk about some of your other storylines. Unfortunately, Dawn had awful taste in men. You had mm. an affair with Phil Mitchell while you were engaged to the hapless Gary. It was Jace and also Rob Minter, which gave you one of your biggest storylines, which involved you being kidnapped while pregnant and mad Dr. May trying to surgically steal your baby. Only, See what I mean? Only in so planned. Um, and then she later returned to wreak more havoc and eventually blew up your house while you were inside it. Um, mm. But when you get a meaty storyline like that, that runs on for a while, I'm sure you're thinking, yes, let's get stuck in. But is there a part of you still saying, poor girl, how much bad luck can one person have? Well, you say about it could only happen in Soapland, but the funny thing is, it was that whenever I read, you know, you had your little cubby hole where the scripts would go to and you'd get really excited and you'd run and see when the next one was coming in. And I was always just thinking that some sort of canned camera was on me. You know, it was all a joke because my storylines were always just really obscure and weird. Um, you know, especially the Mad May Doctor storyline with the time I got pregnant. And I just felt like I was in some surreal um, moment it was it was very bizarre but I did you know it was it was always nice to get something a bit meaty and gritty and and it, it, you know that's the odd thing I mean really I I love doing shows where you enter knowing what you're doing the beginning middle and end you get your script you know where it's going because it is weird when you sort of you really immerse into it because it becomes a sort of, you know, really full on at times. Yeah. And then you get the scripts and you think that doesn't make any sense. And then you're the one that gets blamed for it when the viewers feel exactly the same. They're like, but she wouldn't do that because last week she was a drug addict. And now she's, you know, it's just that sometimes you think you, you wish that someone was sort of <laughs> overseeing things a little bit more in that regard. But um, no, I, lo I loved it when I did get something to get into. It was you had some great cat fights on screen. A lot I of did grabbing have a people, few, didn't I? <laughs> grabbing people by the hair, a few slaps and a wrestle around. Um, they must be fun to shoot as soap fight scenes, especially ones that involve women. I always have a bit of comedy thrown in. Well, I think when you get a part in EastEnders, you there's something in you that you become a caricature almost. So that when the the fight scenes happen, because you know how they go, you become the 15 other EastEnder characters. You just, there's only one way of doing it. <laughs> and you kind of just get really in there. And I, I remember thinking when I had the line, don't get out of my pub, shouted at me from Barbara Windsor. I thought, I think my EastEnders career has come to an end now. I think <laughs> this is the pinnacle moment. You know, just, uh, I couldn't believe. It was like some, sort of a weird, surreal moment because I, you know, had it on on the Sunday omnibus all my life, the EastEnders. You know, it had just been there as a sort of consistent. And um, yeah, it was it was bizarre being in it for that, that stint, for sure. And I guess it's the lot of an actor, particularly a soap actor, when you're so good at embodying a role over a period of years that people have a hard time telling you apart from your character. So they end up having a go at you for having an affair or being mean to Gary. And I think I read it led you to end up hating the name Dawn because people on the street were calling 
you it so frequently. But did you ever just stop and say to people like, hi, I'm Cara, it's okay, I'm just acting? Well, I, I, I didn't like the name Dawn from the off. And I considered that I would go in and ask if we could change the name. But I, I didn't. I wimped out. And then when people called me it constantly, I thought, oh, God, I wish I had. And it was too late by that point. And um, no, I didn't. I just, you know, you get called what you get called. And um, I just went with it, really. But there was a moment in Ikea where a lady said, will you leave that married man alone? And I obviously laughed thinking she was joking, but she she was not joking. And I got out of there as quick as my little feet would take me. <laughs> <laughs> with, that, with Dawn's sexy siren image, I suppose it was inevitable. Although you are stunning. When I told a few friends that I was speaking to you, they said they had massive girl crushes on you. Oh, God, um, you're making my day. <laughs> <laughs> but you were nominated for Sexiest Female at the British Soap Awards and featured in a lot of sexiest women lists. <laughs> I mean, different times back then in the yeah. 90s, uh, or 90s, mid-noughties. Um, those sorts of awards and lists don't really exist anymore, but they came with the territory of a lot of cover shoots in swimwear or underwear in lads' mags. Looking back on it now, how do you feel about it? Because on the one hand, it's flattering, uh, but on the other hand, you're being objectified and not really valued for your skills as an actress. Well, you, you just forget, you know, that, you know, it's not that long ago, but in a way it's retro in the thinking and that there were awards of that type. It just seems hilarious now and it would feel very wrong. And at the time, you know, I was... But having been in the industry from a very young age, you sort of go with this. I was a young girl. I was always going for a particular sort of role. And the trouble was that I always wanted to play character roles and um, different parts. But you kind of get put in this realm of young girl in a bikini or whatnot. And yeah, looking back, oh my goodness, it's been such a learning curve, the whole thing. No one in my family's ever done this before apart from my sister and I have randomly gone into it and so she learned from my kind of bumps and little hip hops in the road but I've been oh whoopsie daisy no not that way not the, 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 and, and you get lost because you know you get asked to do things or to do photo shoots and initially I was just so um I, I thought it was a lovely thing to be asked, mm. but in hindsight, I probably would have said no nowadays, um, but that's the way it was and it was, yeah, a different time. And I do look back and it's, yeah, it's very strange. Does the does the Rear of the Year Award still exist? I don't mean that. Actually, that's a good point. Surely it does not. I don't know. I feel like I've heard that quite recently. <laughs> Are they still doing that? We better check. Shall I ask Google? Is, that, is the Rear of the Year the last one to go? It's literally rearing it uh, away. Let, let me ask Google. Hang on. Rear of the Year. <laughs> that must have gone. And when did it go? I, I want to know. Barbara Windsor won the first award in 1976. God, it was going a long time. Yeah. And who's winning it in 2022? 2019 was the last one. Amanda Holden and Andy Murray. Right. Because, the, the, you know, I, I guess the these things were seen as kind of a bit of a joke, but I'm so glad it doesn't exist anymore. I digress there. Wikipedia got the better of me. So I can appreciate the job security you get being on a soap. But I can also appreciate that as an actor, you want great storylines and having such a large cast on a soap means that everyone can't have one all the time. 
I mean, there's like 20 families in the square at the moment <laughs> and at least 70 characters. Wow. That must be a frustrating situation to be in where you feel like you're kind of just waiting for your turn and just being a background actor in the meantime. For sure. It's, it's, it, it's yeah, you're sort of ordering a sandwich in the cafe every week. But it's a job of its kind and you immerse into the clocking in and clocking out and um, it's all very fast paced. You have so many, it's all or nothing. You know, you go for weeks without anything and then all of a sudden you're doing 18 scenes in a day and you come away thinking, oh my goodness, if only we had a bit more time. And I have such, um, it's an amazing feat that they get that many episodes out a week. It's just a production line of of madness, really. And they get so much in and uh, it's in, incredible. But it does mean that you don't get the time that you would like. But it is what it is. And it's a great training in a way because it's so fast paced. And it's almost like theatre because they've got five cameras and they're like Daleks looking at you. And you go on and you don't have to do what you regularly do in filming, which is turn around on each character and then do a wide shot, etc. So it's just a completely different set up and experience to any other filming job. So after four years, in episode 3,848, Dawn actually got a happy ending and literally sailed off into the sunset with Gary on a canal boat. And your characters were written out, so it wasn't your choice to leave. But it must be hard, even if you feel like your characters run its course, to effectively be made redundant. Oh, it's a really odd thing because you... Yeah, you never know when it's coming. And I knew that I it was time to go. I'd sort of exhausted the, you know, I'd had a lovely stint. And I always said two years and it went on to three and then it ended up being four. So actually, I think it was the perfect timing. And, and you, you think, oh, you, you wish you'd, you'd made the decision like anything in life. But all like everything, it also, you get these little knocks and they end up being the best thing that could have ever happened to you in hindsight. So um, I've learned that in this industry, there's so much, um, you get very used to the rejection and you, you pick yourself back up because you know it's all a bit fickle and, and fast paced and you're on to the next thing. And I had to remind myself that I did go into this to do lots of different roles and so it was a good thing and uh, I remember the final episode yeah I'm running after this speedboat but in fact this boat only went at about two and a half miles an hour and they were in the script it was that I'm sprinting after Gary to get there and they're going car can you make it look like you and I said well that's quite hard to do and to I don't know so I ended up sort of jogging and make my shoulders were going up and down as if I was sort of sprinting upwards instead of out because I could have just jumped on this little dinghy of a boat that we ended up living on apparently and so um oh I was crying with laughter but you think oh this is so someone hasn't thought this through and this is my final scene but <laughs> usually people go in a cab or a coffin so I felt kind of good that it was a little bit off piste and different so uh, and you're alive <laughs> I was alive yeah they weren't killing me <laughs> okay it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latted zone otherwise known as life after that thing I did <music> 
Hello, Genevieve here. Before we get going again, I just wanted to quickly say, if you're a regular listener, welcome back. And if this is your first time listening, you're in luck, because although this is the last episode in the current series, you have four whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on. If you haven't already, please do follow and subscribe. It's free. And if you'd like to support the show, stick around at the end to find out how. Now, back to the latitude zone. So after you left EastEnders in 2009, you of course did Strictly Come Dancing, which is the British version of Dancing with the Stars for our overseas friends. But is it true you were offered it previously but turned it down because you were too nervous? Yeah. And I thought, right, okay, because I was meant to do Strictly the year before and I said yes and it was all sort of signed and still delivered practically, I think. And, And then I had a nightmare and I thought, what are you doing no, this, I love the show, but no, no, I can't. I was such a huge fan of the show. I mean, I was literally in the audience because we were on the BBC. I was in the audience nearly every week. And I think they ended up having to say, look, all right, enough, God, give someone else a chance. <laughs> and um, But I loved it. And and then, yeah, so I, I ended up having a bit of a nightmare and my agent got me out of it. Cut to a year later, I thought, oh God, if they ask me again, I'd definitely definitely say yes and um and luckily enough they did thank god and actually you know what if I'd done it the year before you know many things it wouldn't have led to maybe the the path that it did do so it was the right yeah. thing not to do it the year I, I backed out um so I ended up doing Strictly which was the, one of the most nerve-wracking things I've ever done you're doing something that you you know that is completely out of your comfort zone in every sense but a really one-off life experience that I look back at so fondly it was brilliant and of course you ended up winning the show and your life changed again (laughs) least of all because people started calling you Cara in the street and not Dawn I know and that's the thing that I should have thought about because that was a good positive I hated that bloody name and it was gone (laughs) after that so it was worth doing it just for that alone yeah so uh, and and I won it I I mean I still cannot believe that I won the show honestly it's my victory in life and I take it with both hands and I've got that glitter ball upstairs it's now bald I heard it's lost its sparkle and all the mirror tiles have fallen off lemon bald gray cardboard ball and I honestly I I'm so (laughs) and I feel like saying to the BBC I need some maintenance on this Please, if you can get round here and shimmy it on together again. Is it literally made of cardboard? Yeah. <laughs> Outrageous, isn't it? Honestly, I think... <laughs> Did the work experience make it that way? What happened? I know. Is it like a bag for life? You know, when a when bag for life rips, you can take it back to the supermarket and they replace it with a new one. You would <laughs> think so. It should come with a... Lifetime guarantee. A lifetime guarantee envelope. I've obviously mislaid somewhere. <laughs> uh, there was a great lineup of contestants that year. There was uh, Michelle Williams of Destiny's Child, Patsy Kenzer, Matt Baker, the late great Paul Daniels, and Widdicombe. Uh, and I know everyone that competes ends up being friends for life as you all end up in this bubble. But how wrapped up in the bubble did you get? Because I know another person who was a Strictly finalist and because the show ends just before Christmas, they were totally caught up in it and they hadn't bought any Christmas presents (laughs) or bought any food for Christmas Day and they just sort of deflated when it ended. How was it for you after? Yeah, I think 
anything where you've been immersed into something, or even if you've gone on a trip with a group of people intensely for a few days even, when you come home and it comes to an end, it, it does take a moment to adjust. And that's what it's like. It And it's, it's a kind of a roller coaster of you know, nerves, emotions, and uh, body parts feeling like they're going to fall off because they're aching so much. And every week something else hurts. And um, it's like dancing army camp, you know, for all the glitter and fun of it all. You are just thinking about that for however long it lasts. You know, you wake up, you're thinking of those steps, you know, you're trying to remember. And my memory's not great when it comes to short-term learning, but long-term is pretty good. So, I would probably remember the moves now, but in the week it was harder because I haven't got that sort of memory. And so I would just have to think about it all day, every day in order to be able to go out there on the Saturday. And I wanted to have fun. So it's a funny one. And the professional dancers, as I'm sure people know, take it so seriously. And you're like, please chill out. We are not in the Olympics, but that doesn't... (laughs) doesn't register with them they are in it to win it and um, I mean in that respect I was lucky that Artem my partner um, who went on to become my real life partner um, as you know was um, such a wonderful teacher and he was really strict he was really tough with me I hated him in the room absolutely hated him because he just he was so full-on but then he was really nice outside of the room. (laughs) Obviously when you won Strictly that was um, you know, pre-social media yeah. time then. It was just around the time it was, I was on, um, it had started. But it's not as kind of like what it is today. No. And nowadays you're expected to share a lot about your life on Instagram, etc. How do you decide what you want to share and what you want to keep back for yourself? Well, I've gone through a lot of, you know, different stages of, I think as, as we change as society and just the way we do things you 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 change I mean I can't believe in the time I've been in the industry (laughs) I remember my agent once saying um we'd prefer you not to be on Instagram but there's this lovely thing called Pinterest where you can have these mood boards and and I said oh that's nice and (laughs) ended up (laughs) doing that because I didn't really I don't think I knew what Instagram was at the time but I'd heard about it, but then, you know, nowadays my agent's got a massive, you know, it's all part of it. And so, you know, but you're kind of constantly adapting to the new rules. And especially in this country, we're, we're quite, um, we're not very forgiving. I, I think in, in the U S I feel like people, um, can can do a bit of this and a bit of that. And the more, the merrier and the more experienced, the better, which is in a way, how it should be but here we we tend to put people in boxes and they're not allowed out of that box until we let them or we say it's okay and um it's more difficult but I I just I just use it as a little bit of a diary of my life I'm not overly active on there but equally I if I I like a photo I just put it up and it becomes a, a, a memory of certain times and so I quite like it but I've had to decide what suits me and what doesn't. Also in 2010 you made a BBC documentary called Don't Call Me Stupid where you shared your experience of being dyslexic and having a reading age of 12 and the things you learned while making the documentary changed your life too in terms of discovering new and better ways to learn your lines compared to how you used to spend hours writing them out repeatedly to remember them. Yeah. 
it's quite funny making that documentary because the BBC had come to me and asked if I if there was anything that I was passionate about and would I like to make you know a program on it so I was coming up with all these exotic you know with the Great Wall of China and <laughs> send me on holiday please <laughs> yeah exactly and so I was I was going in that direction and they said oh no we really you know it has to be something personal to you and I said well the only thing I really I feel like I have quite a lot of knowledge on is dyslexia because obviously I'm dyslexic and and I, I was diagnosed at seven so I call myself a privileged dyslexic having known you know what was up and then able to find the right tools and um, routes for going about you know in to help the way my brain works I mean I'm having a moment now I can't find my words <laughs> and they're not coming to me um maybe I haven't my Weetabix today but I um but it was it was it was funny because then they came up with the title don't call me stupid and I I I wasn't sure about that because I thought well I I've never felt stupid and you know they like to be provocative to hook and I understand that but at the same time I've never had a problem with reading it's just that I am absolutely terrified of sight reading so I can read in my head quite fine but it's as soon as the brain then you know that that journey travels from brain to verbalizing it just gets completely lost and it becomes stagnated and I see each letter at a time rather than I scanning the whole line as ordinarily people would do so it it, it but but doing the documentary what it did give me was an outlook at things that I'd never thought about before. And I visited a school that I thought, oh, this would have been fantastic. And um, and I'd love to do a follow-up, actually, because I've learned so much in the sort of decades since making the documentary. And more people come up to me about that than anything else I've done. So I was really proud of it. And it was um, a really positive thing to do. Your success on Strictly ended up opening doors for you, especially the door you really wanted opening, which was to the theatre, as it had always evaded you previously. And for the past decade, in between screen roles um, like in Mr Selfridge and The Halcyon, you've been treading the boards solidly to critical acclaim in shows like Pygmalion, opposite Rupert Everett, two Alan Aitborn revivals, Twelfth Night for the RSC, a touring production of Gaslight, and more recently, The Man in the White Suit and The Windsor's Endgame. How much of a struggle was it to be taken seriously as a soap actress? You just mentioned we like to put people in boxes in this country. I imagine trying to get out of that box would be a challenge. It was. And it was such a shock. You know, it was it was a lovely um, opportunity to get the role of Eliza in Pygmalion because it's a fantastic play. And obviously it was opposite yeah, Rupert Everett and Diana Rigg and some amazing actors. So I was suddenly flung into the world of theatre, which is what I'd always, you know, that was my goal. And so I felt I'd I'd finally, you know, got to where I wanted to be. And then for the next 10 years, I just immersed into theatre and I didn't do much else because you couldn't get me out of there. I was like, I'm in here now, I'm not going. Um, But, you know, ideally it's lovely to do a bit of both, a bit of filming and a bit of theatre and mix it up equally but it I don't know I've always found theatre that's something that I feel 
really comfortable with and yeah it's probably where I feel most confident Mm. because of your dyslexia are plays easier for you because you have the repetition every day so it stores in your long-term memory as opposed to doing tv where you'd have to learn something different every day and utilize your short-term memory more yeah I think it is you get to you know you usually get three weeks to, to to a month or a little bit more depending on what it is but you know, for the first week, you're sitting around the table talking about the piece. Then you look into the history of it and you go through everyone's backstory. And I just, that's probably my favourite part. Because then by the time you get up and put it on its feet, all the work's kind of done and it's very easy. And also the lines then just sort of go in. And then with my memory, once they're in, they're in forever because I've got really shocking short-term memory, but a really good long-term memory. So um, I really enjoy theatre. And then the muscle memory for filming is just short-term and it's completely different. But obviously, if you're in the flow of doing it a lot, it gets a lot easier. Um, But yeah, for me, theatre is the most comfortable of of the two. Um, You've also done a lot of charity work. You went to Zambia with Christian Aid in 2008-9 and trekked 100 kilometres across the Kenyan desert for comic relief. When you meet the people and children in those communities that you're fundraising for and witnessing the struggles and suffering, that must stay with you for life. Oh my goodness, they are life-changing experiences. I mean, when you get asked by a comic relief, you know, know, it's an amazing experience in any case, but I always get a little bit, I would rather go out there and do something, you know. I mean, walking is, I'm going to run down what I've done now. I mean, don't get me wrong, it it was unbelievable, but I'd rather go out there and help to build a school or, because you got, you know, got to meet, some amazing people and and living in worlds that you just can't fathom and get your head around and um, in circumstances you know and 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 it stays with you but i i would love to do something where you go out there and you actually do something with the people living there find out what they need and what you know sometimes these walks and that they're great but they're more of a self-victory at the end of it, even though you're raising money. But I think you could build something and raise money and sort of have a win-win-win-win scenario. But it was um, a personal, incredible um, experience for sure. And so you had your first son, Frey, in 2019. And shortly after, you had the idea for an app, which was inspired in part by wishing Frey's grandfather in Norway could read him a bedtime story. And after a year in development and a Kickstarter campaign, you launched it in March 2020. And it's such a lovely idea, which brings families closer together when they're physically apart. So please tell everyone more about Tell and how it works. Yes. So tell, first of all, I should say it's completely free to use. So it's it's easy to try. Um, and the most important thing was f- to make it as user friendly as possible, because you know what it's like when you go on these apps and just in the first instance, you'll put it off because it's too complicated. But um, I think we've achieved that and we're really proud of it. Um, it came about, as you said, when I had my first son, Frey, and we were thinking about how we wanted a parent at the time. And a lot of our family were overseas in Norway and and also at the time my mum was quite ill and as a family we were 
having a lot of conversations um reminiscing about our childhoods talking about the best recipes mum cooks and we were recording them and so it spurred on this idea of the power of voice so we started out developing a storytelling app where we have a library of you know old fairy tales that we all know and love retold to be enjoyable to tell verbally um, and then you can send it to your loved ones, the kids in your family, or, you know, I think with podcasts and with um, just the audio business in general, we are enjoying listening seems to be a bit of an escapism because I think we're so switched on visually to everything nowadays. And I don't know about you, I my eyes start to hurt because I'm so visually sort of wired and so to sort of at bedtime just to listen to a story is really relaxing so there's that side of it and then we prompt people to tell their own stories so when grandma met grandpa because I was asking my dad the other day we know a lot about my family history but I said how did nan meet granddad and he said oh do you know what Cara I don't remember and you think oh that's a shame because those are sort of you know, treasured stories in a family <clears throat> that will be lost. And so, God, I'm not crying. It's just that I've got a frog <laughs> in my throat. And um, and so, and the way I use the app is with my son, Frey, he's coming up to four. And we, we either, I tell a story and he tells a story or we tell one together, or I interview him about the week or day we've had um, what made him happy, if he was sad at all. And it becomes a diary of what we've been up to and also a diary of the development of his voice. And it's just by accident that's become my favourite thing about it. And um, and then my family enjoy hearing his voice and, you know, his stories. And we we urge people to either keep the profile as, you know, its default position is is personal between the people that you follow but if you've got a great, beautiful voice like you have, darling, <laughs> don't think so. Then you keep your profile open for the world to enjoy, and you know, because there's some people out there with great voices, and um, so we can listen to them telling us a story, and and so it's like a, it's what picture is to Instagram and print is to Twitter, voice is to tell. I mean, those are big, that's a big branding statement. Yeah. That's what we're going for. Um, but yeah, it's all about championing voice and how valuable voice is and storytelling. I saw you describe it so powerfully saying you remember vividly your grandma telling you stories as a child um, and how no image can capture your mum's voice who uh, you sadly lost a few months after Frey was born. And now they're just memories. So what a brilliant way to capture those moments and cherish them when those people are no longer with us and also to pass down for generations at bedtime. Yeah, no, you've worded it very well there. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. But it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's funny because even with the recordings that I took with my sister and my mum, I haven't listened to them yet. And I don't know when I will be able to listen to them. But knowing they're there is a comfort. And I know at some point with my kids I will want to listen to them and that will be quite a lovely thing to have and um yeah it's just and emotional so, it's too emotional too but just having them stored 
um, safely and know, knowing where they are. It's the same thing with photos, isn't it? You think, oh, I want to find that photo. And then unless you're one of those organised people who have, have everything in the album or even on the apps now, it's kind of, you know, you can never find anything. Um, so it's, it's about having somewhere to put things, isn't it, in, in this kind of tech world that we live in. But also just it, there's something really lovely about recording a story and sharing it with anyone, actually. And so the fact that people can talk about their day or whatever and just you know use it as a diary is is actually talking is is good it gets it out and it's it's um you know it's, it's therapeutic and also a brilliant achievement for you to have created it as someone with dyslexia who didn't have the best relationship with reading and books growing up and to have put so much time and energy into it now i'm so obsessed with anyone who reads i used to look at my sister and she'd be you know absolutely immersed in a book into a book and and I would kind of have this envy because it's not something that came naturally to me. Um, so I, I'm always thinking of ideas and ways to encourage kids. And especially now I have my own kids. So I have all these ideas that I want to drip into the app that becomes more about reading and making reading fun. And there's lots to come, hopefully. And yeah, I, I think reading is key to, you know, reading is knowledge so it's great if you can make it as easy as possible for people and I might be missing it but as far as I can see you don't make any money from that app it's free as you mentioned to Mm -hmm. download and use are you just doing it altruistically as a gift to people or are there plans to turn it into a business well I think the idea is to initially see if people like using it and so we just wanted to get it out there and then the idea is that people will have their own stories to tell and just it becomes, I suppose, like all the social media platforms, even though you can have it privately and you could have multiple accounts if you just want to have something with your kids or, you know, or, or whichever way you'd like to do it. But I, I think it was just the the best way of getting it out there. And no, we want it will, it will remain free. And obviously people will hopefully tell great stories and um yeah. And I suppose like Instagram is free, but if people use it, it kind of just, um, you know, it will be a storytelling hub, as it were. Don't take this the wrong way, but I thought of another use for tell. Oh. I don't have any kids, but I do have cats. Um, and I thought it would be a really good tool for people with cats or dogs that have separation anxiety issues from their owners so you could record a story and leave it playing when you go out and then your pet can be comforted listening to your voice Genevieve you just oh my I need to ring the team immediately (laughs) this is going to be out of the forefront of our press campaign to get this out there it's something for pet owners too tomorrow I'm going to be recording all the cats I know (laughs) you'll see it next week my little video showing this exact conversation (laughs) our cat sushi has massive separation anxiety (laughs) issues um as a lockdown cat sort of um, oh well that says a lot doesn't it because is she or he she i love the name sushi she bless her heart sushi that makes complete sense she hasn't been uh mixing yeah yeah she doesn't have many we haven't had many people since COVID. No. So so much so my husband will go to the toilet and she'll sit outside the door waiting Why for him to come out. Um, so do you feel guilty every time you leave the house? <laughs> my husband feels it more than I do. <laughs> oh, God, that would be... Oh, I find but that so difficult. I think specifically Sushi would feel more comforted if she could hear our voices yeah. talking 
while we weren't there, she would, even if she was like half asleep, she'd be like, oh, they're still in the house. Yeah, I can still hear them. So yeah, it's another use for tell. Fantastic. Thank you. All I can say is thank you because you could have developed an app that was purely <laughs> for pets audio audible <laughs> i think cats would love listening to the pied piper of hamlin or cinderella yeah or... with you say it, with the voice that they knew will you give it a go for me and let me know how it goes oh yeah. and put a little video so, to to see when you next go out have one of those sort of Set know, hidden parental, camera. yeah it's, it's a parental cameras that you can see on the app there's apps for everything isn't yeah. there <laughs> final question mm. Uh, I saw you say a while ago this was a guilty pleasure of yours, so I don't know if it still is or not. What is it about Julio Iglesias that you love most? (laughs) (laughs) I love him so much. Oh, God, I hope I get to see him live one day. um, Do you know, it's a nostalgic thing again. I grew up listening to Julio Iglesias and we would spend all of our summer in Spain and um, that was our soundtrack. Julio and... Gypsy Kings was all we listened to for eight weeks or whatever it was. Me too. And um, really, you you share this passion? Uh, not in Spain, but um, my my parents were massive, big lovers of the Gypsy Kings, and my mum loved Julian Glacius. So I had car journeys listening to to all the girls I've loved before. before. You know? <laughs> oh, that's the, that's my first on my playlist when I need a bit of Julio in my life. God, we are like senorita sisters here. <laughs> it's like a blood sister thing. Bonded by Julio. It's huge. I've not, not met many of us, so we are bonded for life now. <laughs> oh, oh, Cara, it's it. been so lovely talking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Really well done with Tell. It's a brilliant Thank app. You. And um, I'm off now to record some stories for my cats. Good. And I look forward to hearing them. Thank you very much. Thank you, lovely. Big, big thanks again to Cara for joining me. Do check out her storytelling app, Tell, which you can download completely free from both Apple's App Store and Google Play. Have a go and record some stories. You can also check out the website, tellapp.com. So that's it for season four. I'd like to thank all my guests who've generously given me their time and shared their stories with me this series. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to them. I really am grateful you hit that play button. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from. So thank you so much for choosing this one. I do make and fund this podcast all by myself. I don't have any sponsors or advertising and I do everything from booking guests to research, editing, publishing and promotion. It's a lot of work for one person that typically a whole crew would do on a celebrity interview podcast, but knowing you enjoy it and the lovely messages I get from you all on social media make it all worthwhile. So if you've enjoyed just one episode of the podcast this series, it would really mean the world to me if you could please support the show. Visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate the cost of a coffee or whatever you'd like. Big thanks to everyone who donated this series. I'm hugely grateful. I know times are tough, so even just sharing the podcast with a friend or on social media really helps too. Hit that subscribe or follow button, leave a nice review because let's face it, people are more likely to listen to something if someone else recommends it. And do say hello to me on social media. Just search for Celebrity Catchup and you'll find me. I'm going to take a much needed holiday, which I'm very excited about because after a year, I'll get to finally see and hear the show on Virgin Atlantic Plains. But I'll be back with a fifth series soon and more brilliant guests talking about their lives after that thing they did. Until next time, 
wherever in the world you are. Thanks for listening.